This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Basically. I'm your host, Stephanie Preisner, and with me in studio today, I have a woman who I have known for very many years, but in a different guise, uh, in, in actually several guises. I have with me today Orla McBride, who is now the, what, what's the title? Director of the, Director National, of the of National Archive. That's it. Um, which we're going to be talking about. But I have known you for years in your work f- previously with the Arts Council and then before that with the National Association for Youth Theatre, which is now Youth Theatre Ireland. Um, but I'm very interested to have you here in your, because I know all about those previous roles. Mm-hmm. But the National Archive is something that, if I'm being very honest, sounds to me like just lots of old newspapers. <laughs> And I know that that's not what it is. So I'm hoping that you will shed some light on it because Ryan Tuberty is a friend of mine and he was in there and he was like, you have to go in there. It is unbelievable. But I just can't imagine what's in there. Like, what is the National Archive? So we call ourselves the memory of the state. So literally all of the official records belonging to the state transfer across to the National Archives. So So we have millions and millions and millions of state records dating back to when we were under British administration. So records going back to 16, 17, 1800. Um, But then most of those were burned and destroyed um, because the old public record office, which was the National Archives, um, in 1922 was over in the forecourts. And when the anti-treaty forces occupied the forecourts... They burned it down. The forecourts were burned down in June 1922 and most of the records in the public records office were destroyed. So we don't really have records from before 1922? No, we're very lucky that we have the 1901 and the 1911 census. Everybody knows them because they look them up to see who their, where their grandfather, grandmother, great-grandmother lived. So then from 1922, when the state established itself as a free state, we have all the records from then on. So and what kind of things, like so where do the public and the archive overlap? Everything, really. I mean, people kind of know us because they come looking for the wills of either members of their family or if they're really nosy, the fellow who died down the way and you're kind of dying to know what did he leave. So sorry, it's a public, like, I can get access to your grandmother's will. Yes, you can. Because the probate office, because every state either government department or state body transfer the records across to the National Archives after 30 years. So the probate office, which is where all the wills live after people yeah. die, they transfer them across to us. So they're so you all have everybody's will. So we have everybody's died. will o- over thirty years old. So we okay. have the wills, and then like often people are looking for them because there's a dispute over land, or there's the camp, you know, there's some issue with mm-hmm. land, or da, 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 who who really inherited what, or you know. Um, so people would be familiar because we have the wills. Because we have the census returns Um, and then other people like historians love it because we've all the records relating to the state, everything from every single government department. So I recently was looking at records relating to film censorship and um, the Censorship Act. So we brought in film censorship in 1923 and then we brought in this, uh, the Censorship of Publications Act. So people are really interested to know so is it just what that- was behind that? Like, why were they bringing in censorship? Now, we know 
you know, the state was in bed with the Catholic Church at the time. So one would presume that there was the influence of the Catholic Church and we'll have none of this racy, these racy films now coming in here or those racy books. But remember that, you know, um, uh, censorship and uh, publications existed right up until, you know, right through like Edna O'Brien, Country Girls Band, John McGahern Band. You know, it's not just your James Joyce's. When you think of contemporary writers, their work were, you know, was also banned. So in terms of the National Archive then, what is archive? Just the act? Or is there any like communication around the act? Can you find out like was why it was brought in? Or is it just the document the folio that says this is the act and this is there's what? an act there's an act it's the 1986 um, uh, National Archives Act so that mm-hmm. says that every state every government department st- and then this list of state bodies have to transfer the records across it's about openness it's about transparency it's about saying actually citizens are entitled to see what happens in government and the decisions that are being made and why decisions are being made etc um, but then we have loads and loads of private records and private documents so um, like business documents and hospital documents and uh, records and they're, they're, they're donated to the National Archives um, so like they don't have to give it to them they're just giving it to you yeah, out yeah. of interest well also that they know they'll be looked after and preserved because we've conservation studio and we've conservators that are working there because most of the records that we have are currently currently but they'll have to be digital in some in some form in a couple of years but currently they're all paper and paper you know, disintegrates. disintegrates. Yeah, so, so you can imagine um, that our conservation, like we have a conservation studio, and at the moment they're still working through. So, after the fire in the forecourts in 1922, uh, Michael Collins was the Minister of Finance. So he ordered in the July, the the fire was at the end of June, about a week later, he ordered that they would start to salvage some of the records that were were just literally in rubble Mm -hmm. um, in the forecourts. And they salvaged about 280, 300 bundles of, of records and they tied them up in brown paper, put um, uh, twine on them and then wrote little um, little labels of what they thought they were because okay. you know they were burned and they were charred or whatever um, and a lot of them had been used to protect the windows from the um, from the uh, from the gunshots and the, the firing Oh wow So, so a lot of them have holes just straight through them um, and they literally have been untouched until now and we have we've got extra funding and we have conservators in and they're literally opening them opening and the they're twine. still charred bundles and then they go through a conservation process to see can we identify what they are but now are they not more valuable yeah they are completely in there? like obviously the information in them but like seeing a bullet hole through a document to me is more interesting than yeah, the absolutely. content of the document. Yeah, like. yeah. And and when Ryan Tuberty came in and we brought him upstairs and brought him into the the conservation studio and, you know, there's one... I mean, it looks like something from outer space. You know, I mean, it literally looks as if you could be in outer space and you pull up this big hood and then you... It probably you, has to be like sterile. Yeah, and the there are hydration domes and there's, you know, like these massive ovens where they can dry things out. Like, it is incredible. So... They're working away constantly trying to ensure that those records that are being created, that are that are coming to us or came to us 80 years ago that we just haven't had a chance to, to look at or we hadn't had the equipment to look at, that they're, um, they're preserving them. So last week, for example, we got Michael Collins's diaries from 1918, 1921, 
1920, 21, 22, so five years before he died, up his until August. Personal diaries. His 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 um his work diaries. He wasn't a great man now for So it wasn't like Dear Diary. Today I no, met with Amy. No, it wasn't. Or <laughs> went for a walk in Stephen's Green with Kitty Keard and yeah. yeah. No, n- not that. But I do know that he had awful uh, dental problems, for example, in nineteen eighteen. Um, you know, I do know that he stopped smoking cigarettes in nineteen you know, so he was putting in little entries like oh, that. That's amazing. But they're very delicate because they're pocket diaries. And he literally carried them in his pocket for for those five years. Most of those years he was on the run. So they're tiny little delicate diaries, um, all mostly written in either fountain pen ink or pencil. And our conservators are saying, oh, my God, yeah, now, now we have to start the conservation work so that these will be, these will remain forever. Um, so where have these been? They've been the, the family had them. They were like no, in a drawer, no, like. no one has seen them in literally the hundred years since the man died in August nineteen twenty two. Did they just find them, or have they had them for ages? And they're like, look, we should probably give these over. I think it was because it's the treaty and all of this period now where he obviously was in London a hundred years ago at this time uh, negotiating the treaty, and then he died a hundred years ago next year. So they want to do something around the centenary of his his death. We have all his records relating to his time as a Minister for Finance. So From the Department of Finance. From the Department okay. of Finance, exactly. Um, and they would all have been over in Taoiseach's department. So from the Department of Finance. So we have all, so they felt that the National Archives was the right place to give, because they tell you as much about his his role as head of the IRB, head of the IRA, but also as a Minister for Finance. And then we have the London Diary, which is a really precious one because it literally goes through. We know when he was meeting Lloyd George and Checkers, when he was going to Churchill's house for meetings, like they're all day in the diaries. Day day. Yeah, yeah, they're incredible. But they're really delicate. And the final one, which is the um, this lovely red um, one, is from those last months, the eight months before he died, so from Jan- January to August of 1922, and it's it's not in great nick. It's it's in rag order. Mm-hmm. You can imagine. Um, there was a you know the civil war had had broken out. Um, so we really need to do a huge amount of conservation work on that. And then what we do is we digitise them because you can't, we can't have people walking into the National Archives and saying, can you give me Michael Collins's diary from 1919? And handing them Because it's too delicate and yeah. it's too precious. But what we will do is we will digitise every single one of them and make them available to the public. And that's really our job. And is it digitising like... I'm being sort of like... It's like a photocopy. You know? Yeah, so like scanning it. Yeah, so it's, high, yeah. It's you're seeing even the marks and the yeah. penmanship. And, and actually, because they're so tiny, digitisation will probably make them more legible for people. And then you'll have historians that'll be pouring over them to see can they learn something new about Michael Collins. And, you know, we have a lot of documentary makers that come in and use the National Archives. Um, so we were... we have guard of stuff in there? Like legal stuff? Oh yeah, a lot of legal stuff, yeah. Yeah. And we would have like, you know, um, cases, you know, some of the like the Bridgie Cleary or we'd have the cases around. I think the last person who was um, 
who was who was killed, like who was executed in Ireland, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we would have all those records and everything. Yeah, so people come in and they pour over them because they might be interested in making a documentary about a particular individual. So they come into the National Archives and they and a lot of those, like for example, we had um, David Norris in in the summertime during um, uh, Gay Pride Month, and it was because we have all the records from the Attorney General's office and the courts relating to the case he took against the Irish state in the 1980s to oh, decriminalise yeah. homosexuality. So David Norris came in and we had all the, the papers out to show him in the seminar room and he was like, oh my God, they're all about me. Like there were just tons and tons. We had boxes of papers Um from the case that he took against the state and then he went to the European Court of Justice as well. So we'd have all those records. So if somebody wants to make a documentary about, I don't know, about the decriminalisation of of homosexuality in Ireland, they come into the National Archives, we dig out all the records and they will literally spend days in there working through them. It sounds like, like I'm imagining if there's that much hard copy paper that it must look like something out of Harry Potter. Like how do you store it all? Like, is it just vaults or shelves? Yeah, yeah. well, uh, currently we have we have about, I think we have about five million um, piece, uh, records in the National Archive. So it's huge. We have two buildings. We have we still have the four courts. Okay. So after the four after the destruction of the four courts, they rebuilt it a number of years. The new Free State rebuilt it a number of years later. So we we have that. So we still and that's a beautiful old kind of Victorian. Um, uh, vaulted uh, repository, they like to call them, but, you know, archive shelving, really, and complex shelving. And then they have complex systems so that how do you find that one yeah, piece of paper, paper out of the five million pieces of paper? Um, and then we have this massive, massive building. Um, I think it's 300,000 square feet Um on Bishop Street, just at the back of the DIT in Angel Street, yeah. uh, which is the old Jacobs factory. And so we occupy that as well. So it's huge. Yeah, it's so, huge. But when people or historians come to you, where do they go? So they come to us, they go up to the reading room. Like, do they have to already know what they're looking for before they come in? It's not like a library where they can browse or... No, they have to know. Or they'll sit down with an archivist and they'll kind of guide them to what they want. But a lot of our... cat, So we have catalogues on the website of... The, of the records that we have. So you'd be able to go through the catalogues and see what you're looking for. But also people just come in and they sit down with an archivist and they work it out, you know, and they work out what they're looking for. So the public come in and use the National Archives every day of the week. Um, I'm just amazed how I can get people's wills. I didn't know. Uh, you, no, you can't. I thought I'd have to like put in an FOI request and no, no, return down. Yeah, you commit to the National Archives and look up somebody's will. What if they don't have a will? They well, die. Is they die intestate then. But is there a record of what happened with there their would estate? Be a, a, there would be a record of their estate, yeah. That's so funny. Irish people are obsessed with wills. I'd yeah, say no. people are yeah. just in there all the time checking that out. Yeah, no, completely. So there'd be a lot of local history groups and things that would come in as well looking for stuff. Now, we don't have local authority records. Um, but then, for example, you know, and uh, all of the mother and baby homes and a lot of the, the records from the Department of Health relating to, so that's why, you know, recently um, as part of the Commission on, on Mother and Baby Homes, a lot of the records that were in the National Archives were copied and made available to the Commission. Okay. So we have those kind of records as well. But their those, Department of Health. or So they came in from the Department of Health at that time. Exactly, or after the 30 years. So there's a 30 year... Y- y- so records don't trans- transfer across to us 
five days after they're made or next year or whatever. There's a 30 day window and then they transfer them across. 30 day? Or 30 year. And then they transfer them across. Budget 2022, which we've just heard in October. We'll get it in in 2050. 30 30 years. Yeah. Okay. 52. So what's coming up? That like, are you always looking ahead at like what happened thirty years ago? Exactly, that's exciting. It's like reeling in the and years. We, uh, yeah, it is. We released them in December, so now, for example, our staff are busy, busy, busy. All the records are coming in from the government departments from nineteen ninety one, and 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 they're working through them, and then they release them on the first. We release them to the public on the first of January. As what? Like as 2022 a list? 2022 as a list. And then you can call them. You can go through and say, oh, I'm really interested in that or I'm really interested in that. But then what we do do, and people know the National Archives not, because actually a lot of people don't know who or what we are. Yeah. They kind of know us from who do you think, you know, they think they know yeah. us from genealogy, but actually that's only a tiny bit of what we do. Um, but mostly people know us. You know on the 1st of January when you open the newspapers and you hear on this day 30 years ago, Charlie Hawley and Margaret Thatcher said this, that or the yeah. other. That's we let the journalists get advance preview of the records that are going to be released that are 30 years old before Christmas. They frantically write up their copy over Christmas and then they come out the days between Christmas and New Year with the newspapers or David McCullough's a great one and on RT1 and they come out and they do on this day 30 years ago and that's the National Archives have just released those records. And is there a sense that like there's stuff hiding in the National Archives? That like government departments are like, yeah, we'll just file that. No one will ever know. They shouldn't send us over anything that's closed. What does that mean? Like that's... That if there's, if there are records that are highly confidential or they're still using them, you know, for whatever reason, they shouldn't transfer them across to us because technically really every, but everything that comes across to us um, should should be available to the public because we're we're kind of neutral on what the content is. Okay. Our whole reason for being is to make the records available to the public. And it's so it's really about, you know, living in a democracy and, and the citizen having access to how decisions were made or the records of government 30 years earlier. So there wouldn't be people coming in unearthing some big scandal that happened necessarily? Well, before the 1986 Act records may have come across to the National Archives that we just, they just moved them across to us, mostly because we have the storage and maybe government departments didn't, that may not have gone. There's a process now that was laid out in in the law in Mm -hmm. 1986. So we might have records that didn't come across properly before that. Yeah, in that way. Um, But now nothing would come across that we we, we wouldn't be making available to the public. And then we have like, so we've all the president's papers, for example. Yeah, I was just going to ask about that. Like, is that personal or is it sort of the same as like a a diary and the stuff that they've done? It's it's the formal... um, papers that have been created or records that have been created by the presidency rather than the individual. But you're going to get, you know, like the one that's fascinating are the kind of the visitor's books. So, you know, um, and then we kind of were, our, our team are great at putting out tweets or whatever. So it might be on this day, 50 years ago, 
Princess Grace of Monaco visited Aris Nukhtaran with her children and then we'll take a photograph of the entry and, you know, tweet it out so people oh, can cool. see, you know, and then we Albert, you know, we child or whatever, right, in his name and Stephanie and, and, and uh, Princess Grace. So we have all of the, the President's papers, yeah, and they're fascinating. Fascinating because you get things like, you know, the menu for a state dinner. Um, you know, so it would be on this day when, you know, um, uh, John F. Kennedy came to Ireland here is, and we tweet the, the... I'm going to follow you on Twitter. What's the Twitter handle? Um, I'm doing it now for anyone who's listening. At N-A-R Ireland. At N-A-R Ireland National Archive. Um, oh, cool. Yes, yeah, so you can get all the... So at the moment you'll see it's all on this day 100 years ago uh, Arthur Griffith wrote to Eamon de Valera or whatever because we're in the middle of preparing the ex- uh, an exhibition on the treaty. So we're putting out every day records that were created by the delegation in London a hundred years ago on this day um, in, in working up to the, uh, the treaty. I'm taking a break from my podcast to now tell you about the most bizarre podcast I've ever listened to, but curiously hilarious. You all know Michael Flatley, the Lord of the Dance star. <laughs> Well, apparently he wrote a movie ages ago called Blackbird, right? Which is sort of like a James Bond theme thing where he himself stars and it goes around sleeping with loads of women. Anyway, no one's ever seen it because it never got released, right? But he wrote it and made it. And this comedy group called the Bootsy Boys are remaking it in podcast form. So if you look up the Bootsy Boys Blackbird podcast, they are in sort of short episodes going through this movie, what they think the movie is. And it's, it's really short. It's like a burst, an injection of energy and hilarity into your day because it's so bizarre. Just check it out. First episode, they're very short. You'll know from the minute that you're in whether you like it or not. And I think it's strangely addictive. Check it out. The Bootsy Boys Blackbird podcast. Tell me, are you still looking for something worth dying for? Oh, kid. I left all that behind me. These days, I'm much happier as the humble owner of this down-to-earth and incredibly exclusive nightclub. Mick turns his head away and stares pensively. Dancing hot sex man, adventure romance. He will kick several Nazis and get in your pants. Blackbird! Listen to the Bootsy Boys Blackbird on the Headstuff Podcast Network. I want to give you a quick note from our sponsors and before I do that to remind you that if you support our sponsors who support us that is how the circle of podcasting keeps going. So our sponsor today is Rockwell and their financial planning service it's designed for people who they just kind of feel like they want to just put a shape on their finances get things in order and that is from whether you are a senior executive in some multinational company or a young couple or a business owner anyone who just wants to get a head start on their financial planning they're here to help they sort of consider themselves financial doers rather than financial planners there's a lot of action in there and a lot of support so no matter where you are in the country it doesn't matter they can help you over zoom or in person Uh, pensions and investments they're huge you know they're hugely important but they're useless really if you don't know why you're using them where they are and how how they're getting on so Rockwell are really about outcomes in business. It's not just about the plan. It's it's action-based. So they use like award-winning investment advice to help their clients achieve their goals. And they have a special offer for basically listeners. So if you go to rockwellfinancial.ie forward slash Stephanie, you can book a complimentary, which means free, 
financial planning session today and you'll get a cash flow model which will outline any gaps in your finances and give you your first steps towards achieving specific goals for you. Guys, I have something so exciting to tell you. Guess what it is? Listen to these sounds. These are the clues. I have merch. I have merch. I have a pen, which sounds like this. And I have a notebook, which sounds like this. What they look like are a notebook and a pen. The pen is sort of bamboo and they both say basically with Stephanie Prisner on them. Actually, the pen just says basically and they are on sale now and you should buy them. The pen costs five euro. The notebook costs 15 euro. You can buy them together. That would cost 20 euro. But if you are a Headstuff Plus member, which costs five euro a month, you get the pen for free when you buy the notebook. Anyway, I know you're so excited. Just stop listening and go on to shop.headstuff.org and buy the merch. Send me pictures of you and the merch on my Instagram, which is at Stephanie Preisner. I'm so excited. It's a beautiful notebook. It, it's black and it has a little, little thing so that it stays closed and the pen is like clicky and smooth and it's blue when you write with it. That's important to know. And it's five euro and the notebook is 15 euro. And I'm very excited about the merch. Go buy the merch. What kind of stuff like social history do you have? Like for people who are interested in history but maybe not political history yeah. of the state, what kind of documents are there? Well, recently I was doing work with... Um, a documentary maker and that was around say women of the revolution and looking at the role of women and the place of women in Irish life before 1916 and then what happened after 1916 mm-hmm. and, and particularly with the establishment of the free state and you know because remember in 1916 women were activists and women were very political mm-hmm. um, and then that shifted pretty quickly as we kind of moved into those early years and then those, you know, as the state began to establish itself. So f- as part of that documentary, we we, we um, presented them with uh, workhouse uh, records. So we would have records from the old workhouses, which are extraordinary and fascinating. Like what, the stuff that they were doing or what or, kind of or, records? Or their circumstances, because it would be the ledgers that they had when they were when they were being signed in. Okay. So who they were, a lot of them were widows right, because okay. there was no support for for widows. They had to go and work. And so they had to go into the workhouse um, and, and just rely on charity and bring their children with them into the workhouse. Um, so we were using that to show then in 1935 with the establishment of the um, the widow's pension. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden... The numbers dropped of people. Women, the, the state was supporting women, you know, in, in a way that it had never done before. So people find those kind of records. So they'll, they'll, they'll come in, they'll, they'll look at the workhouse records. So they'll make assessments then or judgments in terms of the role of women in the 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s in, in, in Ireland. And then the establishment of the state. And then how did the widow's pension, for example, affect the place of, of, women. of women in Irish life? So that's really, those kind of things are really interesting, you know, because documentary makers will see a set of records, but they'll look at them very differently. Like we have these extraordinary um, penal records and convict records. So people who were sent out to um, to Australia 
Okay. Um, so you can see why they were sent. As in, instead of prison, instead of prison, they were sent yeah. to Australia. Yeah. And for what kinds of things? Like, is all that written down? I mean, all of it's written down, and some of it is just absolutely like nothing, bonkers, bonkers stuff, you know, and very, very little. Um, you know, for robbery or for you know, and they were just they were just sent off. Um, so they're really interesting. I always think there's a really interesting documentary to m- be made about um, about the penal records that we have, and what's really fascinating fascinating is that anybody who went into prison they took a photograph of them Oh wow are they there too? Uh, yeah and then they took like I've shown um, uh, David Norris when he was in in the summertime just around the period there was a man called James Pillar and uh this was in the 1880s and he was a wine merchant and a grocer um and he was a Quaker and he had a shop on Lower Ratmines Road and he was running uh, so he he was um, imprisoned for homosexual activity. He was given 20 years. He was re- running some, they said, a homosexual ring in the back of his shop in Lower Rathmines Road. Now, the other people involved in that were the head of the Metropolitan Police, um, you know, quite senior officials oh. within Dublin Castle. They weren't imprisoned, but... James Pillar was imprisoned and we have the photograph of him when he went into prison. Now he was a married man with three children and we have his penal record so you can see what happened to him when he was in prison, who came to see him. You know, I could see that his sons continue to come to see their father um, for those 10 years that he was in prison. Uh, he was he was sentenced to 20 years. They let him out after 10 on poor health and within two months he died in the Mercer Hospital. So there are human stories there that you kind of think, oh, they're just records or papers that uh, that are just living in the National Archives. But actually there's stories of people behind them all. You could literally spend every day going through, going through them. Oh my God, they're just extraordinary. Um, and and then like even uh, hospital records and old education records. And, you know, so what kinds of those like this person was in hospital? Like, because hospital records can be very dense, but is it literally like, is it big data? Like this many people came through this hospital this year or is it like Monday or the McBride oh, no, throat it, infection? It, or, would, it would be, you know, it would be a combination of both really, you know. Um, so, so for the very early, early records, like the ones that we have are donated to us. Okay. So they want to look after them. So mostly they would be, you know, Victorian records that they want to preserve. And therefore, if you send them to the National Archives, you know that they have expert you know, expert conservators that will look after them. All the records are kept in proper, you know, environmental controls in terms of temperature, humidity, etc. So, you know, so that's why they would be deposited in the National Archives because people know that they're safe. And then we have stuff like, you know, I was down in the safe recently, like we have the Good Friday Agreement. So you can, you know, you can go the in and you can Good look Friday at the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah. Um, the, uh, you know. So if you want to go in and look at that, how how is it presented to you? Like if I go in, what what happens? We Talk see, me through the that. The Good Friday Agreement is so precious, obviously, that it's closed as okay. a record. So we would provide you with a, a copy, a copy of it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So you can get copies really of of anything in the National Archives. Nowadays, people come in and they just take photos of their phone on their phone if they're getting hard copy records. But a lot of stuff we put up on on online as much as we can that people can just from the comfort of their own home, you know. Um, and regarding, you said that some people just volunteer their stuff to you, like hospitals and businesses. Yes. Like what kind of businesses, is it like 
mind this, I'm going to come back for it? Or just like, this should be kept? Like no, what kind it, of business? It could, be a, it could be a business that traded for 250 years and then closed. And they feel that the records tell as much, you know, there's your social history yeah. as it does a kind of a commercial story. So like Cleary's? Kind of thing, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, we don't have Cleary's, but yes, those kind of businesses. of businesses. Yeah, so they'd say that actually there's a social history to be told here as much as there is a commercial. So we're going to, to transfer these records across to the National Archives. Quite interesting. I found all my Nana's diaries after she died and all of the ledgers that she kept from my granddad's business. Um, and he was a builder and he was building houses in Castleknock. And she has like a breakdown on one page of exactly how much her house cost to build and every single thing. And I think overall it was like £15,000, you know, and this monstrous thing in Castleknock, like, and how much the windows cost and how much. And it's just, it's that sort of stuff that makes you go, wow, I get a real insight into the time. And also the fact that like, bookkeeping all the Minister for Finance needed you to do was write down in a ledger how much this cost like no such thing as keeping a receipt like I'll just write down on a page and hand it to you and like we have like some of the the first um, checks of the state because do you remember when you used to write checks and then checks would come back to you you probably don't I don't you probably don't even have a checkbook (laughs) so when you used to write checks years ago the check would eventually come back to you why? it was whatever way they used to run it through the bank so I'd write you a check Stephanie Preisner 20 pounds in those days and then that would go to you and then you would bring that to the bank. bank and then the bank would send it back to my bank and it would be the money would be taken out of my account but then for whatever reason I used to get the cheque back so we have some of the first cheques like we have we have um, records from the early days of the state and it literally is handwriting how much they were spending like on health on bit like yeah that's amazing you know so um uh, you know, in those early days of the foundation of the state as we were beginning to establish ourselves. And then we have amazing records like we have, and again, they're finance records. So you kind of think, oh my God, you know. Boring. Uh, yeah, yeah but exactly. But actually, they're all the compensations that were paid out to families um, and businesses during the War of Independence and the Civil War. So if you're building or your whatever was destroyed or bombed or attacked or whatever, you would make a claim. But to make the claim, you had to describe who, what, where, wh- when and how. Because there was no, like, you so there, to send a picture. Like. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Or there was no assessor going to go out. So you had to actually describe what it was, what happened, who was involved, where, etc. So we have all those from across the whole country. So they're Is amazing. Is there much like rural, or like an insight into rural Ireland? Like... Yeah, all well, the stuff that you're describing, I'm I'm all thinking like it's all like GPO centric and the national like these big Dublin things. But what was happening? Do we get a sense of like what was happening in like rural Roscommon at the time? Well, those financial compensation ones, because they're the War of Independence, they're everywhere. Everywhere. They're right, everywhere. Okay. Yeah. So they're every county in Ireland because I obviously all the wills and everything is the, all rural. the independence movement was every county in Ireland. Yeah. Um. So so yeah. But I mean, we get people travelling up all the time. But our biggest challenge really is like it's not fair everybody having to trips to Dublin if they want to access records. So it's really important for us to get everything, get as much of the records that people are really interested in digitised and available to them. And what are the top ones that people want apart from the wills? (laughs) Apart from the wills. Um, Sorry, is the wills also 30 years? Yeah. So yeah. I can't see what someone's will who died last year is. Yeah. So you would because you're mad with the wills. Um, well, it's interesting. You know, no, it is. Absolutely. Um, 
it would it really depends on whether you're talking to historians or you're just talking to really interested people who are you wouldn't believe the kind, or, you know. Uh, uh, there's no rhyme or reason often to what they're what they're pulling. If if you're writing a book, then like we had somebody recently who was writing a book about the president, the presidents and the president's letters. So they were they were looking for everything to do with the president. But then you'd have a random Joe who's coming up and he's interested in records relating to a peer. In near where he lives and he'll call those records relating to that pier and the construction of the pier and you know like completely random Just out of curiosity though. Just or he could be writing a local history book Okay Or involved in some kind of you know local historical society So there's anything like you can ask about I want to know everything to do with the building of Dublin Airport and you'd all have you'd have all that. And you'd be able to come in and have a look and see the plans because we and we've all the OPW records, so What's, they're great. Tell us about the OPW. So OPW, so they're around every you know every county in Ireland, so every pier, every harbour, whatever. So that's the Office of Public Works. Yeah, listening. So that's like parks and like I have a friend who lives in the Martello Tower, yeah. which is actually owned like she owns it, but the OPW do something with it like she can't just put a picture in the wall like she has to clear it with them because it's a state because it's a it's a it's a uh, protected a protected structure. structure yeah yeah so OPW records are great so yeah as you say everybody thinks it's the GPO and yes it is and the forecourts and the customs house and all of those but actually it's courthouses around the country it's schools it's you know peers it's you know they're they're the office of public work so what we now a lot of that has transferred across in recent years to local authorities, okay. and we don't have local authority records. They have Why their own arch. They have their own archivists. Okay, but yeah. but it's still open to public. But they're still open and they're wonderful, and they do you like a really fantastic. So, job. like, if you wanted planning permission records, exactly, you will go to your local authority. authority. Yeah, if you're. And I'd say you'd love those because you're as, yeah. well, you're, I, I, if you're as nosy about the planning permission as you are about the will. I do be love looking. to read a bit of planning permission when I, I see always, it. I'm always going on Donegal County Council to look up planning applications. I know, like I, or like I'd stop and read it if I passed it. I wouldn't go looking. Oh, I though. always go into the, or, you know, like the, the local paper, I would look up the planning, you know, who's looking for planning permission. Are you still living up there? No. Just out of interest, what's happening in the neighbourhood? Yeah, yeah. Can yeah. you find? Because I go home all the time, obviously. Can you go retrospectively? Because there's a there's a big um, construction happening development near where I live, mm-hmm. and I missed the planning permission note. Like I don't know what it's going to be. And is it in Dublin or in Cork? In Dublin. In Dublin. Oh, go into Donegal or Dublin County Council, and you'll be able to look it up. Just see what what is this about? Oh God, yeah. Yeah. Have you ever objected to anything? No, never. No, that's, that's that's a totally different question, though. Yeah, no, no, I haven't ever objected to any plan permission, but I'm always just curious as to who's building and where they're building and what are the building. What are you most excited about for, like, coming up? That you're like, oh, I can't wait until those records come in, or are you? Do you really look back rather than looking forward? In well, the this year. Um, as I said earlier, not to bore people talking about legislation, but there was a 1986 Act. And then what happened was, so everything was coming in after 30 years. Mm-hmm. And then in the UK, they introduced a 20-year rule. So all government records transferred across to the National Archives in after 20 years. queue after 20 years. And that's fine, except we share records relating to Northern Ireland. Okay. So we couldn't have them... Releasing the records relating to the Good Friday Agreement without our records being released as well. So then we had to make an amendment in 2018 to our Act 
to allow us to release records relating to uh, the Good Friday Agreement. Um, so all the records from the Department of Antioch, the Department of Foreign Affairs, the Attorney General's Office and the Department of Justice will be for, from 1992 to 1998 will be released now in, Sept- in December and will be made available to the public from the 1st of January. So I'm really... That's all the time of the troubles and the agreement. Yeah, I'm really... I think they are going to be extraordinary and fascinating. Um, And then what you'll have is you'll have a full suite, the Irish ones, the Northern Irish ones, and then the British ones. So I think for, you know, and it's, it's recent history. It's not, yeah. you know, it's not us talking about something 40, 50, 60 years ago. This is recent history. And for some people, it's not history at all. You know, they've just come through it or, come they're, through still it or they're still it. living it. So I'm really interested to see what comes. So they're, 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 they're coming across to us. We have um, uh, we have pallets coming in every day and big lorries that are, you know, like the Department of Antioch, when their records come in, the army move them. So, so the army, because they're the Department of Antioch and the Antioch has an aid to come. So the army move the records of the Antioch's department. So they come in these big massive lorries with the army um, and then the 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 uh, they're, they're delivered. So yes, we've huge, huge pallets of records coming in at the moment. So for the like next thousands of boxes of records. That's so you have in the next five weeks to process all of those enough to send a press release to journalists to get a first look at them or do you kind of know it's the Taoiseach ones that they'll want or yeah, justice or well, well it'll be those four but I mean they'll all have to be processed so we have so our staff are on site six, seven days a week since beginning of October Okay so they're working flat out so that then on the 13th of, of December we'll allow the media in and they'll get they'll get five or six days of access to those records and, and what does that look like when they walk in like is it pages on a desk or what are your there staff? are lists and then okay. they call the lists and then they're brought to where they're sitting and then and and they move them around you know then so you get them and then when you're finished with them you bring them back and then we then they're distributed to somebody else it's like a military operation. Right. It's Literally. just because you're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of files flying across the room with like 20 journalists in the room all wanting that letter from Tony Blair to Bertie Ahern in relation to whatever was the last stumbling block um, that they were trying to, or, you know, I mean, I think it'll be interesting because Mo Molan was alive at the time. So oh, it'll yeah. be really interesting to see, you know, her, 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 role, in her role in it. And so th- I think that that's what I'm really looking forward to, the Anglo-Irish papers and the that's release re- of those. It's really interesting, like for the moment that we're in with Brexit and Northern is, Ireland yeah. and everything, like it's really pointed. Maybe it'll shed some light or remind Britain that we, that it exists. Yeah, no, it, it, so yeah, so I'm really interested in those coming out. So if people want to visit the archive, yeah. can they, like, what's the story with COVID? Can they just rock up? Should no. they look online first and see what they might be interested in? Look online, book an appointment because we're, like, normally you can just rock up and then you come. Okay. Um, but because of COVID, you have to make an appointment. Um, but and you sit down then with an archivist and say, and you can you sit down, you can go onto the website, look at the catalogue, see are there any particular records that you want, or if you're interested in something but you don't really know, email us, and then an archivist will get back to you and they'll say these are the kind of records that you should be looking for, and this is what we have, and why don't you come in and have a look at them? Like just say for example, uh, someone saying like, I'm really interested in cars, vintage cars. 
is there anything in the archive? Like, could you say something as broad as that to no, an archivist? No, we'd say... We have nothing. You yeah. need to be more specific. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, as I said at the very start about the newspapers, do you have no. newspapers? They're in the National Library. <laughs> That's so funny. That They're is. in the National Library. <laughs> All the newspapers are in the National Library. Okay. I suppose the newspapers are writing about... And we about would have old clippings and everything, but they're contained in files that have come from somewhere else. Yes, but I, what I'm saying is that like, if you were looking for something, if you found something in a newspaper or something from the past, the follow-up documents that you might need might be in the archive. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, relating to a particular case or a story or whatever. What else do you think people should know about the archive? It's They're their records. They're the records of the Irish state. They're the records of the Irish people. People should have access to them. And I suppose from our perspective, we have no, you know, we we don't bring any judgment on any on any records. We're our role. Totally neutral. Completely neutral, completely agnostic. Our role is just to say these are the records of the state and the citizens of the state should have access to them. So it's all, you know, built on that, you know, democratic principle really of access to how decisions were made or access to, you know, the state and the apparatus of the state. I just wanted to ask one final thing. You know when people, you said that sometimes people just volunteer their, Mm -hmm. like the businesses. Do personal, like do private people just say like, do you want my diaries? Or what? How does that work? You'd have to kind of be somebody, really. Or have done something. Or have done something. So, you know, Michael Collins were very happy to take his (laughs) diaries, you know. Um, Like Robert Barton, who was another one of the delegates um, who went to London in 1921. We have his personal papers. He went with Michael Collins? I've never heard of him. Yeah, he was another one of the bods that went over the five. Arthur Griffiths, Michael Collins... Robert Barton another fellow George Gavin Duffy and uh, Eamon Duggan so they were the five so like we have Robert Barton's papers we have George Gavin Duffy's papers he was the guy George Gavin Duffy was the guy who defended um, Roger Casement do you remember in the treason trial where yeah. he was eventually um, he was eventually hanged? Um, but Gavin Duffy, who was like an Englishman, who you know, who was a a, a a barrister solicitor in the UK, and he just after the Casement. Uh, uh, trial, he completely changed, changed and became an Irish revolutionary and moved to Ireland and uh, was a Republican. And this is all like, is what do you, what papers do you have belong to him? So we have papers belong to him relating around to the, the case ne- to the negotiations. Oh, fab. Yeah. Yeah, like even like Robert Barton's papers, what we have, like extraordinary little notes, like, you know, the way, well, nowadays under the table, we'd be texting each other. Yeah. But they, obviously. So, uh, like Michael Collins would be passing notes to Robert Barton or they'd be passing notes to each other in Downing Street. And he kept them all because they knew that they were doing something extraordinary. Okay, They were breaking our relationship with the United Kingdom for the first time in 700 years. So they knew that they were living through an extraordinary experience. So we kept all the notes. Like he used to, we have an amazing table plan um, of who sat where. Where did Churchill sit? Where did Birkenhead sit? Where did Lloyd George sit? At those negotiations. At those negotiations. So we now know exactly where everybody sat for the first time in 100 years because we're we're, presenting this as part of of our commemorations programme. That's amazing because there's so many different like theatre, film, different imaginings of how that went. Yeah. And it only just makes them more authentic now to be like, no, actually, he wasn't sitting there. He was sitting there. Yeah, 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 exactly. So you have to be someone. You can't just ring up and be like, you can't you want ring my diary. Up and say, would you like me, me How papers? do you think it's going to go 
now that everything is like oh. now the Taoiseach is like texting people across the table he's not passing notes how do you think that technology the, is going to merge? That is the biggest challenge and it's not just the National Archives every government and every National Archives in the world is saying if you create a Word document or an email today how is that going to be available in 30 years time? Or if you or like, that you just don't press delete How about the Minister for Finance doesn't have a, like, text the Minister for Justice about something or is it, yeah, how is it all going to be? It's huge. And then the other thing is, if you, you know the way there's this whole thing now, Word Word 7 and Word 10 and, you know. Oh, yeah. So. They might not be compatible with future data. Exactly. So that is, and now it's much bigger than the National Archives, this whole challenge. So we're wrestling with it as is the whole of government. So we have to create some kind of a digital, a digital archive. That's what we have to create that'll be able to take all of these records now. And, you know, they should be handing up their, their, um, their phone. text messages and their phone messages, whatever. There should be, be a way. I'm sure they won't. Like. But there should be a way in which they're, because they're actually records of the government. Um, but I, so we have no, there's no easy solution to it, but it's a huge, huge, huge challenge for us. I wonder if because of FOI and sort of how robust people like Ken Fox are at, you know, mm. putting in FOI requests and getting that data out contemporaneously, that it won't, that very little will go unnoticed for 30. Do you know what I mean? That yeah. yeah, no, I mean, freedom of kept. information is uh, has been a really positive thing in terms of transparency, transparency yeah. yeah. And it can only support the, the, the National Archives and the work that we do, you know, but just in terms of, as you say, after 20 or 30 years, those documents being released. So they do work together. Um, but ours isn't about getting it out there. Ours is about making, making it, available. it available. And also keeping it. And keeping it. And keeping it. I think there's something so quaint and magical about what you said about like the little notes and I and you know having Michael Collins' diaries and knowing that he had two teeth issues. But like you just think like in 30 years time it's going to be far less like mystical and magical to be like on the 25th of October 2011 Pascal Donoghue set up a Word document. You know? Yeah like, and I do think FOI has been a really good thing but it also has people have, it's kind of sanitised an awful lot of how people communicate because people are so conscious of it and so aware of it. So some of the colour is gone gone. from communications between people or because they're so, oh my God, if this is F. Everybody writes now in government. Something's FOI. As if it's almost thinking this is going to be in the public domain. But I think it's also because the public domain has changed, right? Yes, true. Like now it's not like if Michael Collins said the wrong thing, he wasn't going to get cancelled on Twitter, you know? Yeah, He wasn't exactly. going to have people picketing outside. He's okay, he did have that. But like, you know, he was, there wasn't like the court of public opinion in yeah. the same way and it wasn't disseminated so publicly. So I can understand how those two things mix, but I'll be interested to see how that, you know, there's a huge sort of social commentary of just the type of data that the National Archive will continue to get. It's huge. No, it's huge. But also that the expectations of the public are changing all the time as well. So, you know, maybe 30 years is too long. And that, as you say, if stuff can be released under FOI. Why can't it be? You know, in in today, you need to have very solid arguments around the release of of other data. I mean, sometimes it is that, you know, 
decisions haven't been made or you need to, to mm-hmm. allow something to live or progress or whatever. Yeah, because something can't really be archived if it's cur- if it's, it's still current, happening, yeah. you know. And then you probably don't want random bits, people being like, well, that case is solved, so you can have that one from but 2011. But you can't have this one because, this, yeah. It, so you do to- need, but I think, you know, and as I said earlier, in relation to the digital piece, like we're not unusual. Everybody, every national archives, because every state, democratic state, has a national archive. Um, like you even see that in the US at the moment, there's huge controversy around the release of records um, around um, Capitol Hill in January of last yes, year, yeah, they and they so had fast. the yeah, and they had the investigation and then the release of the information. So you know. People, the citizen and the expectations of people in terms of being having access to the decisions of government like that, that's never going to go away. Um, and in an age of social media, you know, people have access to so much just literally, you know, at the touch of a, of a screen. So I think, you know, governments will have to, to change over time how they they make records of government available to people. Sorry, last question. And it's not the shortest one. As the director, mm-hmm. what what's your actual role? Is it like seeking new archives to come in, organising? Like, what is the job of the director? Like, is it like a curator or...? No, because you'd have all of the archivists that really are the experts. It's a bit okay. like, when, you know, when I was director of the, of the Arts Council, I, I do see myself like the conductor of the orchestra. Okay. I don't play the cello and I don't p- play the violin, but you need a conductor to keep it all moving. So it's it's a big building. So first of all, you have to run a big building. Mm-hmm. Secondly, you have to run, you know, you have to support the staff who are doing what they're supposed to do. Thirdly, then the public are coming in and using the building every day of the week. So you need to have a public service available. And then fourthly, you're storing millions and millions and millions of records. So you have responsibilities and you have to manage the storage piece as well. So it's complex, you know, so it's like I'm not down looking at the records yeah, that okay. are coming in every day of the week. You you know. So like you happen to be you've, interested in this, but that's not a prerequisite for this job. You have 50 or 60 staff oh, okay. that you're trying to manage. You have a building that you're managing. You have the public coming in. You have all the records that you have to ensure are looked after. And then part of my job is to make people aware that the National Archives exists. And that's why if we do more and more public programmes, talks, etc., focusing in on the collections, that people get a sense of the work that we do. Thank you so much for coming in. If people want to find out more where where is the National Archive? What is the Twitter, and how can they contact it? So we're on Bishop Street, which is just um, off Anger Street, um, nationalarchives.ie, and the Twitter handle is. We gave that out. Yeah, yeah, give it out. Orla McBride, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for listening to another episode of Basically. If you have any questions on this episode or you want to get in touch with me, you can contact basically at headstuff.org. Our music is by Only Ruin. Our graphic design is by Kahalo Gara. We're part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, and we record at the podcast studios. See you next week. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.